This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. The best place uh, to have your money is to have it invested in equities, in property, uh, in crypto, in emerging markets, all these sort of things. All right, so welcome to the potty, guys. We are back for another episode of the Investors Podcast. Just want to preface this. We This is attempt, I don't know, 25. Braden couldn't get his 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 I've stuff sorted. Today. He couldn't get his stuff sorted. He's really struggling to, to capture what it means to be a host. All right, so he's used to getting <laughs> he's he's used to getting interviewed, um, and we 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 gave him the responsibility to do the intro, and it was it's possibly one of the most awkward moments of my life. It's so much easier being the person who's being interviewed. Yeah, literally, <laughs> it's so much easier. Literally, now you know how I feel. Mm. Right, like being a host, like you actually get good at it though pretty quickly. Uh, once you get over that awkward phase, like you know the eyes are on you, mm. and it's not conversational, but. Welcome back to the potty, guys. Um, we are going to be talking today about... Yeah, so I get asked this all the time. How do you actually prepare for any volatility in the market or any downturn in the market? So I thought, why not cover that and we can go over um, some risk management and that sort of thing because no one really talks about it. Uh, a lot of people don't really think about it either. They just think, get into the market and obviously wait for things to go their way, but they don't really have a strategy in place for what happens when things go to shit. So I figured we'd um, have a conversation about that today. I think that, I mean, you know, from my perspective is like when you first get into the market, uh, what the barrier that stops you from getting into it is, well, I don't understand. Uh, and, and usually that comes because I don't want to lose money. Um, mm. And I also feel like it goes the other way. Once you're in the market, you kind of make this assumption, yeah, I don't really have enough money in the market to actually lose or I don't care about the money that I'm going to lose until you get a big enough position. Um, and, and what when I say a big enough position, that's probably perceptual, right? It's It's – um, based on the individual, what is a, what is a large uh, sum of money to that person? Mm. Well, uh, also a lot of people come to me, so say someone's got $100,000 saved up and I say, like I tell them to, to dollar cost average into the market and they take that upon like basically putting like $1,000 in every month or something like that. But that's going to take you four years to put that money into the market. So the best way to uh, do that is to probably just divide that into say four or five chunks and invest those um, over the course of five months or something like that. And then that way you're fully exposed. And then from your income on your additional savings, that's when you start dollar cost averaging that thousand dollars into the market because it's all about having time in the market as opposed to timing the market. Uh, And especially when you're young, you can afford to take chances and to, um, to go through times of volatility and downturns. And also that's a good time to then prioritize um, saving and that sort of thing in order to take advantage of those times as well. What do you mean by time in the market versus? Um so typically, uh, I think the Motley Fool did a research study that showed that if you have money in the market over say, uh, I think it's like a one year period, there's usually eight days within that full year where you 
make the majority of your returns. Mm. The rest of the time, it's either going sideways or it's actually um, towards the negative. Mm -hmm. And so if you miss those eight days, you may as well write off the year. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important to actually have your money in the market um, at all times. And especially now with what's going on with money printing and all those sort of things. And because we're also at the end of the debt cycle, uh, Ray Dalio sort of um, conceptualized the, the debt cycles because we're at the end of the 100-year sort of debt cycle. Um, we're now seeing a period where because interest rates are so low uh, and there's so much money printing that's going on, the worst place for you to have your money is in cash or bonds because you're earning negative real rates on those on that money. So the best place uh, to have your money is to have it invested in equities, in property, uh, in crypto, in emerging markets, all these sort of things. Yeah, 100%. We, we have obviously talked about this before, but what you mean is, is obviously by having your money in cash um, or even in bonds, you... Um, well, that, that money is becoming less valuable. And well, they bonds, just don't, bonds they, you get a, a minimal return. Yeah, they don't, uh, they don't perform well in times of low rates <sighs> and um, high printing uh, of money, high inflationary environments. So you typically want to have your money invested in hard assets during those times. And that goes against, I mean, like I, I know for me, it's like if I had never of probably met you <laughs> I probably I, you know I was invested before you'd have we- money in your business which is still uh, a really good thing to do I think we were saying this the other day probably the single best hedge you can do against the current ecosystem is to actually have money invested in a business mm. you're in your own business because that also generates cash flows that allows you to afford um, food housing uh, all those necess- uh, essential um purchases that we need to make in our daily lives but um, if you don't have that luxury and you're working for a company and that sort of thing then it's often wise to to diversify and have that money invested uh, broadly into the economy um yeah and and um it's and and going going back to the kind of holding cash perspective as well like a lot of people and and kind of what i was saying before is like myself is like if i hadn't have met you and I, I was invested in some companies back then, but it wasn't something I did actively. It was like my friend told me to invest in a company and I was like, yeah, cool. Like I'll just jump in, maybe put like a thousand or $2,000 in. Whereas now I'm actively investing. And I think the difference is, is when you're not actively investing, you see cash as something that is just uh, like the, the, a normal resource, right? Which it is, right? But when you're actually actively investing, you start to look at cash as a, as as an investment, mm-hmm. you know? So you go, okay, well, how much cash do I actually want to sit on? Because if I, um, you know, and, and how much is that cat of a return is that cash going to get me, right? And and when you start to look at cash as a resource, you actually start to think, okay, well, what am I going to do with this cash to, uh, sorry, when you look at it as cash as an investment mm. um, or uh, as an asset that you own, you start to look at it and go, okay, well, how much do I of this do I actually need to hold, mm. right? Because if I hold too much of it and, you know, let's say 80% of um, my assets are in cash and that cash is becoming less and less valuable, I'm getting a, a, you know, a negative yield on that or I'm, I'm kind of losing my money. And I think that's the biggest, uh, even for me as someone who's probably been investing now for what, three, eight years actively, mm. um, it's like the biggest thing that I've noticed is the difference in mindset 
when you become an active investor um, based upon the, your, the, your total assets and, and starting to look at things such as, um, you know, fiat or, or the cash that you're holding as, as an asset and what kind of return that gets you. I think the biggest thing, the biggest difference Andy, between... Can you, can you get up, um, are you able to pull up the amount of debt that has increased over the last 20 years? I think the biggest change for you has been back when you were first starting investing, you were obviously getting that advice from friends and this sort of thing. So you didn't really have any conviction. No. You know, in the companies. Sorry, in Australia? Yeah, you had no conviction for those companies. And so during times when there was weakness in markets or there was a a pullback in those stocks, you're most likely going to sell out of them because you weren't sure what was going to happen to them. You didn't know any of the fundamentals of that business. Whereas now you actually have conviction for companies and know that during tough times that those companies have cash sitting on the balance sheet, uh, ready to sort of take advantage of those times. They can go and hire, um, they can invest in in new innovations and that sort of thing in order to expand um, their potential. And so that's the thing that's uh, changed um, probably for you is your conviction on those different companies. And once you have conviction, you can invest for the longer term. Uh, and that's typically how you outperform the market. Yeah, so I, can, I got a little story. And, and I, I remember I, I probably really started to, to really get active, I reckon, once we got it, we actually entered the pandemic. Like I had stocks and, and I owned companies before that, but I wasn't aggressive in the way I went after them and I wasn't mm. aggressive in the money that I actually allocated to them. Um, and what I found is, and I actually made a really, really, if I look back, there's like a, a big mistake that I made. I missed out on a massive return. I used to own a company called PointsBet um, and I got in at $2.20 when they IPO'd um, and they got up to about six bucks, I think, six point, you know, six dollars fifty. Um, and then once the pandemic hit, they actually went down all the way back to a dollar seventy. And I thought, oh, like at the time, I'm like, and and again, this is probably just my mindset at the time because I wasn't an active investor. But I remember sitting there going, oh God, like. I don't know if they're going to come back from this. I don't know, you know, there might be better places to put my money. Are they actually, you start to question all of these kind of things. And, and in reality, I actually sold and I sold at $3.30 or something. Um, and you fast forward, you know, 12 to 18 months later and, and I think their, their high was like $18, right? Yeah. So for me, that would have been, I don't know, like a 800% return, a thousand percent return. <laughs> Um, and I'm, I'm lucky we actually own some shares, uh, me and my partner own shares together, but, um, myself, I had, that was my largest holding at the time and I ended up selling and, and everyone else kind of stayed in. But the reason I'm telling that story is because I look back at it now and, and, you know, if I had been an active investor and I had had more money in the markets and I had kind of built up my, my, um, understanding, uh, and more so my resilience as well my diamond hands, yeah. um, I, I would have been able to probably hold that and, and get those returns. But because I hadn't been active, because I was only new to the market and I wasn't, it was more so I had been in the market, but I wasn't actively investing. So I wasn't actively putting my money in the market. It actually yeah. led me to to probably making that decision and selling. So when that, in just reality, comes through, that just comes from experience. So once you've been doing it for a while, 
uh, you know that there's bound to be a pullback and so you're able to um, have conviction through that time in order to hold on and then also if you if you have prepared yourself for an imminent crash because we're always going to have a crash at some point um, typically your personal finances will be in order so you'll have all of your expenses taken care of and you might be contributing say 20% of your income towards the market each month and so if you continue to do that throughout even times when um, the market has gone through a downturn you're going to put yourself in such a great position to take advantage of those times as well uh, because you already have that saving in place and you just continue to invest through that time and that's how you dollar cost average your way in. And so when you're an experienced investor during those times, that's when you can potentially take on margin. You can um, uh, you can gear yourself um, heavily towards those times and actually buy in big because that's often where the opportunities lie is when everything um, is being sold off. Uh, it's the whole uh, premise of being greedy when others are fearful. Yeah, which is Warren Buffett's quote. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But that just comes through experience. So I know people who are holding off, waiting for the pullback. Uh, This comes back to the whole timing the market uh, versus time in the market. People are holding off, waiting for a pullback, but the market could increase another 20% from here. And then if there's a pullback, it's only going to bring you back down to prices where they are now. And so for me, it just makes more sense to be invested and, and build up that habit of continually putting your money into the market. Uh, and in doing so, that will build up that experience and you'll start to get exposure to, to mark times when it's up and times when it's down. And that just applies to the, the various psychologies when it comes to investing as well. You see this a lot in Bitcoin, you know, like I've got, a, you know, I'm in, I'm in group chats with friends and, you know, at the dinner table with family and it's like, people are uh, still questioning on whether or not it's the right moment to buy in. And, and, you know, we are so far beyond that, but it's also people are waiting for this next big pullback to come so that they can buy in. The only thing is, is Bitcoin's one of those assets that it might, you might get an increase of 50% and then the pullback might be 20, right? Or 30, right? So it's still 20% above what it was last time. And people are waiting for it to go back to this magical number that they've set Mm. to buy in. When in reality, you know, the best thing that you can possibly do is just invest and invest for the long term, especially in an asset like Bitcoin, because in reality, it's the philosophy of Bitcoin that actually creates the network effects that creates a network. And that's what creates the value. And, and price is just a lagging effect of that, right? So yeah. people are looking at this differently. Again, like the, the principle you said, they're trying to time the market in spend, instead of just investing over time, which teaches you, well, you probably get the insight of going, well, you know, this could be 30 to 40% higher or even 20% higher than this number that I've set. So Mm. I'm going to invest now. And because I invest now, I've got skin in the game. I actually get this understanding that, hey, I'm going to be ready the next time that pullback happens and Mm. I'm going to get the good price. But the... And that's going to allow me to continuously do that over time, Mm. which means that I'm going to inevitably get a better return. It's a good trait to also recognize that when you do put money into the market, you should always be prepared for a pullback. So oftentimes, I don't know if you have this experience, I often put money in and then all of a sudden it's down like 5 10%. You know, and you feel like such an idiot in the short term. But if you start to think longer term, if you look at that investment in five years time, and you look back on the price that you bought in, you're not going to care if you bought in at, I don't 
10% more than what it was after that short little pullback because you might be sitting on a gain of 100% or something. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember Christmas this year where I was up in Rye um, staying with my my um, my uh, sister-in-law and, and um, uh, her partner and we were, Bitcoin was on an absolute run at the time um, and I remember looking at it and I'm like, this is when I was like first like really investing in like good amounts of money in Bitcoin uh, and I, I remember sitting there it was at like 37,000 Aussie so that's like what it'd probably been like 20 27 or something mm-hmm. US and um, I was waiting for it to go down to like 30 32 <laughs> and I'm just like yo it needs to get there it needs to get and I'm like refreshing as soon as I wake up in the morning and like and um, you know in reality it, it, it's exactly what you just said you look back and and you know, you look at even where it's at now, you know, it's doubled um, from where it is. So yeah. that's definitely something that I've noticed with even just my own investing is mm. like, you know, I invested in Bitcoin when it was at, you know, almost 60,000, mm. right? But I also invested and I invested more at the point, you know, back when um, it was, um, you know, when it was, when we, when we, when they, we went through those downturns, you know, they, that, that's when also when I invested. So mm. it's, um, the time in the market principle is definitely something that you you get accustomed to without actually knowing it as a principle, but mm. the more time you spend in it, the more you kind of become aware of these things and the better a, a, an investor you become. The short-term price is, if you actually uh, look into the fundamentals and the technicals and everything like that, you don't actually care about the, the price today. So say Bitcoin's at 45000 today and you're waiting for it to drop to 40,000, is that really going to make a difference when it's worth 100,000? Not really. So you're better off being in the market as opposed to hoping that it drops to 40 and it drops down to 41,000 and then explodes up. You know, then you're going to miss out on the whole thing and you're going to feel like an idiot for missing out on this rally. And so this is why time in the market is is the way to go Mm. for these sort of things. 100%. 100%. Yeah. All right, so let's 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 break this down then. Let's let's kind of have a have a talk um, about what do we do, you know, to to potentially negate the effects of a crash or, or kind of be able to, to navigate these kind of circumstances. Yeah. And why are we having this conversation more importantly? Why? Andy, did we get the debt? I've got the total global de- debt for the last uh, what 7 to 8 years. I haven't been able to find anything it shows the last 20. That's all right. So what is it? So it's gone from around uh, 200 trillion to 280 trillion globally in the last 10 years. And as a share of GDP, it's up to 356%, which is just crazy. You know, that is a huge amount um, relative to how much the economy or the world economy is actually producing. Uh, and... Uh, I can't remember the firm that did it, but there was a a firm that did some research over the past 200 years and it showed um, different economies that had reached a surplus of 130% uh, debt to GDP and uh, the majority of those countries that had hit that point went through some sort of devaluation in their currency. Uh, And so the last time we saw it was around 1940s and... Obviously, during that time is when um, the German um, marks um, devalued, and that's when you start start to see videos of or photos of people wheeling uh, wheelbarrows of cash around in order to buy loaves of bread and this sort of thing. 
And so we're at that point again uh, within the debt cycle where a lot of countries have reached such high proponent of um, debt to their GDP that the only solution really is to inflate the debt away. And so in order for them to do that, they're going to keep interest rates low uh, and they're going to try and basically boost inflation up to a point where they can just inflate that debt away. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see inflation hit targets over 10%, 15%, and they'll keep rates around, or well, in real terms, it'll be negative. So what does that mean for the everyday person? Like, you know, because they're probably sitting here going, what does that even mean? Like, we so don't you, understand that. That'll typically mean that um, asset prices will continue to, to increase. So you're going to see equities increase. You're going to see property increase. You're going to see commodities increase. Um and so, uh, and eventually you'll start to see wages and that sort of thing increase, but wages is always the last thing to increase. And it's, it's nowhere near the rate that you're seeing an increase, no. like, you know, property's going up, it's yeah. 20% up this year, you know, like wages aren't going up 20%. Exactly. And it's because um, as humans, we kind of have this understanding that if we invest in fixed assets, they're going to go up in price. So people you know, we're always looking after ourselves, right? Yeah. I want to build personal wealth, right? Because yeah. personal wealth is economic security. Economic security means food for my family, you know, shelter for my family. This is kind of deeply mm-hmm. driven into us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we're seeing what wages don't go up because what we, you know, it's also built into us to get a good return on our investment. And mm-hmm. in, if we're looking at staff as an investment from as a business owner's perspective, um, in reality, yes, it's we, all, we, we do like to pay staff, but you know, it's still wired into us to try to get the best ROI. Yeah, exactly. And so if you look at it in terms of say, say someone's earning $60,000 a year and they're saving 20,000 after expenses, you know, the best thing that that person can probably do is to try and develop a second income where they might, um, they might be able to save an additional, say $20,000 outside of their, their job that would require a 33% increase in their output, in their labor, but 100% return in their savings. And just in doing that alone, and if they put that money to work for them, that'll put them in much better stead, obviously, um, going forward. And they can then take advantage of these cycles. You know, they can put more money into, uh, into the market if there's a downturn. Um, they can develop a better... Um, habit with their personal finance of actually investing, say, 20% of their income um, into property, into stocks or whatever it may be, you know. And so that's um, for, for someone who's just starting out and um, is on, on a wage um, comparable to that, that would be the first place that I would start. Um, and if you want more information about this, we've talked about this in previous episodes too, about how to get yourself to a point where you can start investing, you know, mm. through savings, paying off debt and these kind of things. Exactly. Exactly. So, so uh, total global debt, 280 trillion up 80 trillion in the last, say, you know, since the last financial downturn, which was 2008 or mm-hmm. the, the cl- kind of global economic crisis, 356% um, as a percent of GDP basically means that it's, t- it's, it's taking us 3.5 the amount of debt to um, grow the economy at, or in terms of a rate, right? So if we're, 
wanting to increase the economy by um, 50 trillion, it's going to cost us, um, you know, 170 trillion to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the world, so the world realized after we went off the Bretton Woods that we could expand the economy by using credit. And so it basically started from the ni- 1971 when they went off the Bretton Woods and towards now. And so they uh, realized that by using debt, using credit, they could expand the economy, and this is how we've expanded through globalization, technologies, all this sort of thing. But at some point, like you've got to pay for that debt, and so we're kind of at that uh, the end of that business cycle, which means that something um, is bound to happen. And so, the Fed has basically, without actually telling the world, they've they've pretty much told us that the only way that they're going to be able to get out of this is that they're going to just have to inflate the debt away. And so uh, this is why we're seeing so much money being printed. And I know there's talks now that there's going to be a lot of tapering and that sort of thing. And they will, they'll try to start to taper and they might look at raising interest rates and that sort of thing. And then they'll start to see the equities market, the properties market um, starting to have um, a significant pullback, you know, and then the only reaction that they're going to have to do from there is to just print more money, put it back into the system. Um, and so, so when you say inflate the debt away, mm-hmm. right? So, so because I know that that's something that I, I find the listeners at home may not be able to comprehend, you know, because uh, you know inflation is not something that's a complex fully topic. Yeah, yeah. So, can you simplify that for the listeners? Okay, so rates are currently around zero percent, and inflation is around five percent. So that chews into um, obviously uh, the value of the dollar and people's purchasing power. If you increase that up to 15%, that will compound over time. And by uh, doing so, essentially that that purchasing power of that debt um, also disappears. But the only thing with doing that is it it has... uh, it is a negative towards the dollar and uh, bondholders because the returns that you're generating on that cash or the purchasing power that you have on that cash um, goes negative, essentially. And so that's why it's important to have that money invested so that you're actually keeping up, or if not keeping up, but hopefully trying to exceed the amount of that inflation so that your purchasing power and your, your, uh, the value that you've stored up retains that value over time. And so um, things like a property is really good at that because it stores um, the value within that space. And because there's always going to be more demand for property as opposed to supply, those asset prices are going to continue to go higher. Um, And the same can be said of of other assets as well, like gold, like silver, platinum, Bitcoin, all these sort of things. And so that's why it's important to have exposure to these sort of things. Um, but then you, it's also, you've got to be careful when it comes to investing as well because there's value traps out there. So you actually do need to pay attention to the valuations of these things because a lot of equities have been built up, especially here in Australia and over in the US, uh, where there's been a significant amount of money printing. All of that has gone into the stock markets and property markets and push these things up in price um, towards the point where they may be a value trap and you may not actually get um, any compound growth in these assets. And so in that case, it's important to look at emerging markets. It's important to look at gold, 
Bitcoin, all of these sort of things, because they're going to be the things that will outperform, say, over the next decade or so until we're at a point where things normalize, I suppose, in the US, here in Australia, um, Canada, these parts of the world. So how does, so, so in your opinion then, what do you think, like, how does someone navigate the, the, the future then? If, if, if they're going to inflate the debt away and we're going to see um, uh, inflation go up to 15%, rates probably aren't going to change too much. How do you navigate that? Like, like so what yep. are some of the consequences and then how does, how does one navigate? So some of, the, some of the consequences of high inflation will be um, – it becomes really tricky when you start to talk about the macro of it all. Um, but you're going to start to see consumer goods obviously going up in, in value. Um, and so the, your everyday purchases uh, will start to increase as well. And unfortunately, when it comes to inflation, wages, uh, wages growth and that sort of thing is the last thing that – gets touched, unfortunately, because uh, businesses tend to prefer to reward shareholders and the owners of the business as opposed to consumers of their um, their goods and services. And so this is why it's always important to, to have your money invested in things as opposed to holding cash, because what people don't realize is that your purchasing power over time diminishes. And so I saw a, an article last week where it said that uh, the typical savings for a first home now, the, the amount of time it takes you to save up for a deposit is uh, has gone from 10 years now to 15 years after only 10 years uh, since the, the um, GFC. And so what that tells you is that you're, the, the money that you actually hold um, is buying you less. And so this is why uh, it's important to have that money put into areas where it's going to outperform the rate of this inflation. It's been happening for for decades now, but it's been exaggerated because of what's happened in the GFC. And basically from the GFC, it's just been kicked down the road. We've had a lot of uh, quantitative um, easing. So money um, being put out into the economy through bond um, purchasing by the government and also um, basically UBI. So um, checks out to everyday people and these sort of things. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. So when you say they're going to they're gonna kind of uh, inflate the debt away, what, what it means really is that um, th- what happens during kind of these downturns and, and an easy way that I usually like to think about it is if they didn't support businesses during this time, what would happen, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of businesses, because the lack of savings, because of the, the – um, I guess the the easy ride of just making money in an economy that's booming mm-hmm. has led people to kind of think they can get away with more than what they actually can. So, mm-hmm. so you know, I don't need that much savings because I've got money coming in. Mm-hmm. I've always got this money coming in. So if they didn't print money, a lot of businesses would um, obviously um, go under, yeah. um, which means there wouldn't be as many jobs and we would kind of find ourselves in a, in a depression the economy would kind of be going backwards and there'd be a lot of mutant, which mutiny. Is, it, which is exactly why they're not going to taper, essentially. Exactly. It's why they can't, yeah, right? They can't. So what this means yeah. is is that they, because they can just keep printing money and there's no consequence whatsoever, um, that means that the they'll keep interest rates low so that people can get you know, um, a lot of borrowing power. Um, and then what we'll see is obviously um, scarce assets go up in price. 
um, and 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 these kind of things, and um, they can then just which which creates a greater wealth gap, mm-hmm. right? But what it does do is it keeps business going, which keeps jobs going, which creates the illusion that we're doing okay as an economy. Yeah, we're kicking the, yeah. the can down the road. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, look we're, at we're companies doing okay. like your GameStops and and all these sort of things, companies that are losing economic um, sense because their business models have been disrupted via innovation or whatever the case may be, but because they've received a lot of stimulus from the government and this sort of thing, they've been kept alive. But it's also why you're starting to see now that the the job listings are increasing, but a lot of people aren't taking those jobs because these companies refuse to increase the wages to actually get people on board. Why would people want to go out and get a job when they could be earning just about the same sitting on their ass? doing nothing and that's that's basically what we're saying is yeah. that you know the government and the fed will keep kind of just printing money and giving it to people um because they can and yeah. and that means that they can keep driving well, inflation main, up their main objective is to keep produce or to keep gdp um growing the way that it is and also to keep unemployment at a very very low rate as opposed to during the depression era where it was 25 percent yeah sort of thing yeah and 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 so Prices will go up, the rich will get richer, but the like basically what they're saying is we'll let the poor or, or even just the middle class live off money that's printed um, because we would rather we would rather deal with inequality than what we would um, mutiny, right? <laughs> Which is what would happen if you know, um, you know, job, like we, we, you know, think about what we're going through right now. Imagine there wasn't stimulus, like, you know, I kind of think, and this sounds bad, but it's like, I I start to think of like the purge and like, (laughs) and this kind of shit, like that, we just don't know. Right. Because what, like it's Well, typically the end of a debt cycle does lead to a war. So the last time we went through a debt, the end of a debt cycle was in the, um, the late, uh, 1930s and that's obviously when World War II started and so because of what happened and this is a history lesson now but because of what happened during World War One, the world sort of didn't let Germany forget the debts that they had accrued and so the only way for them to get out of it was to continue printing money and to put that money to work into um, building up their defence industry and all these sort of innovations that come with it and then eventually their dollar or their um, the German marks um, collapsed. Uh, World War Two started, and then there was all this prosperity within the country. But then, obviously, there were repercussions from that, um, and so that is what typically does happen at the end of a debt cycle. And we're starting to see something similar, like between the Cold War between the U.S. and China, and these sort of things. I don't think it'll blow out to a full-blown war. Hopefully. Um, but this is also like, so, so you know, when con- when countries go through vulnerability of inequality, you know, um, which Germany went through back then. Which we're now starting to see with countries like El Salvador and a lot of these countries that rely on the US dollar, but aren't actually benefiting from the money printing that's going, um, that's taking place there. But um, these residents are starting to see their purchasing power decrease um, because of all this money printing. And so this is why you've now seen that they've gone to the Bitcoin um, standard or using it as a reserve asset. But the other thing as well is, is like when you, when you go into those vulnerable positions, you start to create an us first them mentality, Mm -hmm. right? So that's why we see dictators come in and that's why we see these kind of crazy 
um, you know, like like Donald Trump. How does someone like him actually get into power, yeah. right? And and the reality is, is it it comes from the us versus them mentality, right? Because you've got one part of society who yeah. deepens their relationship together. Right, and that's what Trump leveraged. Trump goes, well, I don't need everyone to like me. I just need my people to deepen their relationship with me and each other so much mm. that they'll be delirious, mm. right? Um, and it's not just Trump, but like you see people around the world, and this is again what causes wars. Like that's what allowed Hitler to come into power mm. is because Germany were in such a vulnerable position that any form of leadership. Right. And, and, you know, like, and, and when I say that is that, you know, anyone who shows any form of leadership, whether it is morally correct or not, has the ability to capture the attention of people to say that we're going to, we're going to give you a better life. And that's where that del- delusion comes in. Mm. Right. It's the delusion from that, that allows these kind of situations to happen. Um, and, and that's what kind of, I, I believe what we see over the last five to 10 years, right. Is that, you know, we start to see that politicians do less and less and they lie more and more and corruption starts to happen more and more um, as we get further and further into these points um, of vulnerability or wealth inequality. And mm. that comes from, again, everything we just talked about, the hyperinflation that's going to come. The more and more that happens, the more and more the rich get richer. And we're not just talking about levels in society. We're talking about countries versus other countries, mm. right? Because who can truly take over the power that the US has had over the last 50 years apart from, you know, potentially countries like China. But, you know, you think about someone like El Salvador or you think about some of these countries that, um, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're third world countries. Like they're just, they're, 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 you know, they're in, they're, they're kind of going through massive, massive struggle. If everything is pegged against the US dollar or the US dollar is the currency of most countries, you know, like El Salvador, how do they have any chance to build wealth, mm. right? They, how do they have any chance to actually climb that ladder? Yeah. And the reality is it's just, they just don't, yeah. right? So then that's why we see them going to something like Bitcoin and adopt a new system because that means they can get competitive advantage, yeah. right? They can start to have an asset that will accrue in um, – in uh, value. And we're not just seeing it in these countries either. We're seeing it in terms of um, the China and Russia not buying US uh, government bonds anymore yeah. because it just doesn't make sense for them to do so because they're going to get no returns on that. So that's why you're starting to see um, countries like Russia and China start to build up their stockpile in gold and oil and all these other hard assets because they know that... Um, all this inflation and everything that's bound to happen in the US is going to have uh, real, um, real negative impact towards the rest of the economy. And so this is why when it comes to preparing for a potential inflation environment, it's important to diversify your assets away from um, countries like the US, Canada, Australia, and to, to uh, look at uh, emerging markets. So I know Lynn Alden was looking at uh, Russian energy companies to invest her money in. She's looking at uh, country, uh, companies in Brazil. Uh, she's looking at uh, the bean down um, tech shares in China, like Alibaba and JD, these sort of companies, um, because I think China's come out and they've sent a message towards them, but they don't want to fully... 
um, dilute these companies. They don't want them to go to zero because there's so much labour potential there and there's economic force there as well. Mm. So these are, are potentially good uh, investments to have during these high inflationary environments, as well as things like gold um, and silver and, uh, and oil and all these sort of things as well. So, all right, so if you're someone who is quite new to investing and there is potential for some type of economic pullback or downturn or some type of crash or a bubble bursting, uh, and based on all the conversation we've had today, what are some of the steps that they can take um, to, to obviously combat that? Yeah, so I'd first make sure to look after your personal savings. Make sure that you have your expenses paid for and then on top of that, get yourself to a point where you can start to put a, or to save. Um, it, it's subjective, obviously, but I would say 20%. Uh, and use that money to invest into things like, to make it simple, probably um, ETFs. So you could look at emerging market ETFs. You could look at commodity ETFs. Um, these sort of things which will most likely outperform during these times uh, as well. Um, God, there's so many different things that you could do. Um, I'd probably look at property because property is a scarce asset. Um, anything especially, that's fixed, right? So anything yeah. where there's a scarce number of them. And we've so. also seen with um, with globalization, we've probably reached a point back in 2008 where we hit peak globalization. And so now with something like COVID, it exacerbated the issue where you start to see supply chains fall down, which is why you saw toilet paper run off shelves and all these other consumer goods run off shelves. Um, timber. I know. Timber, yeah. My, uh, my chippy friends, there was a, a timber shortage. Yeah. Ch- um, chips, like microchips um, for cars, which is why you've started to see um, – the used cars, used go, cars up. go up. All these hey, sort they're of giving things. me 15 grand for my Jeep at the moment. What's happening? But as the, the semiconductor industry starts to come back up on board and improves their supply chain and all this sort of thing, you're going to start to see more cars flood into the market. Uh, and you're seeing more people go back to work, so they'll probably be taking public transport again. So you're going to start to see those um, prices come down, which is why you start to see the Fed come out saying that a lot of these um, inflation um, environment is transitory. Uh, we've already seen lumber come down, uh, but you are starting to see other bubbles pop up in, in different areas like your NFTs uh, and all of these hype assets, um, but they have started to, to come down now, which is a good thing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would be focusing on emerging markets. Um, What's having, an emerging market? Emerging market is something like India. It is China, Brazil, countries that... Um, you're talking, so when, when we say that, like, you know, when you're investing in something, you're not necessarily going to look on the Chinese stock market, but there might be a Chinese company that's listed on the US stock market or the Australian stock, well, not, that's probably never going to happen, but maybe <laughs> on the US stock market or investing in some type of commodity where that resource is, also, is created or generated in that particular country. Right. There is a macro risk though, obviously, um, with the government having so much power in these countries. You've, like you can just look at what's happened with Alibaba, for example, a, country, a company that's growing faster than Amazon, um, but they've been beamed down because... Um, they don't want to have too much power. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to have too much power, but I think 
they've they've sort of sent a message out there, but they don't want to destroy these companies altogether. So it looks like it is a really good um, buying potential, but this is why it's important to have a, a diversified portfolio and to look at position sizing as well. So I would only allocate a small percentage of my portfolio towards something like an Alibaba or a JD.com, but they have so much uh, room to grow and outperform within your um, within your portfolio. So it may grow from a 2% uh, weighting to something like 7%. But then there's also, because of that macro um, issue, there is the potential for that investment to to maybe go to zero. You, you never know what the government in China is going to come out and do. So um, this is, yeah, I would, I'd be looking to try and diversify, but be really smart about it. Yeah, it's a brand thing, right? So yeah. for me, I look at it like brand. Brand is Latin for margin and trust, right? So mm-hmm. in, you know, the US stock market and all the brands in the US, although some better than others and so on, but mm-hmm. you, if you look at the US market compared to China's market, mm-hmm. um, there might be some really good buyers in China, but the brand isn't as strong, yeah. right? So which means there's, there's probably, a, there's a higher chance that, something could go wrong over here. So yeah. you've got you probably got a bit more safety over here in the US market mm. um, and there's probably some good buys over here, but there's also some traps mm. um, that you can get stuck in. Exactly. Yeah, so this is what I was talking about before. There's going to be some value traps uh, and especially with valuations as high as what they are, um, it, it's an area of concern, but there, there is going to be some value plays that will outperform like um, anything that has anything to do with your hard commodities. So here in Australia, it might be a BHP, it might be a Rio, um, that sort of, or a Santos or whatever the case may be. Um, but I would be typically steering away from um, like banks, insurance companies, companies that hold on to a lot of cash because that cash is obviously losing um losing value, especially in these uh, high inflation times as well. Um, But then it's also a matter of just trying to rebalance your portfolio all the time. And so I wouldn't neglect um, tech stocks, like e-commerce is here to stay and it's going to grow, continue to grow. Um, Other themes include like cloud computing, um, biotechnology, um, cybersecurity, AI, uh, sustainable energy. So virtual reality, virtual reality. So you look at a company like Tesla, which is a battery company as well as, um, a, uh, energy, uh, uh, sorry, a sustainable energy. Yeah, energy company as well. So they've merged and they're pretty much the leader in both of those fields. And so over time, a company like Tesla is going to outperform as well. Uh, and so those are the sort of fields that I would be continuing to look at, but I would not be looking to hold any bonds, tr- hold on to as much or try not to hold on to as much cash as possible, put th- that money to work, but also looking at ways to obviously save more cash and to generate more cash as well um, would be ideal, especially um, with everything that's going on. What about some of the, what about some of these kind of assets now that we're seeing that people are, are kind of the hype assets that we've talked about? So, so what are some of the risks involved with things such as NFTs and, so, you know, altcoins yeah. such as Dogecoin and a lot of these coins that are just kind of pumped up um, and, and, you know, we're obviously seeing there is a lot of hype around it. Me and you mm-hmm. are very invested, very indulged in that world, trying to learn, um, but we also kind of, go in there and keep a really close eye on we've what's minimized, happening. We've minimised our risk too. So they, they don't make up a high percentage of our portfolios and we're not investing in them from a fundamentals perspective. We're looking at them purely because typically when Bitcoin's in a bull market, 
altcoins will outperform and will most likely outperform Bitcoin as well. And so just from a technical analysis perspective, you want to capture that growth. And so it's okay to have money in Dogecoin, but I wouldn't be putting my whole life savings into it, you know, because it could go to zero. You you never know what's going to happen. And so because we are starting to see some bubbles form in this market, especially the NFT market where you're starting to see like a JPEG image of a rock sell for millions of dollars or the Bored Ape Society selling for millions of dollars as well. Like this market, you're sort of seeing all this hysteria um, within it, but it's most likely going to end the same way as the ICO market where a lot of these projects go to zero because this isn't really their use case. It's still a very new asset. We're still trying to figure out the nuances of it all. And so you have to give it time for these sort of um, industries to mature, which is why you're starting to see um, Bitcoin's um, accumulation phase sort of lengthening and it's not going up as much as what it used to. But we are seeing things like Ethereum, where, like if you match them and align them up to past cycles, the Ethereum chart is matching what happened to Bitcoin in 2017. And so you're starting to see the same sort of adoption cycles go through. And so because Ethereum has somewhat of a network effect, um, that will obviously outperform Bitcoin because Bitcoin has such a larger market cap. And so you're not going to see the same returns. It's already had those returns. Exactly. Exactly. So as the market matures, it's going to act a little bit more like the equity market or something like that. Um, Whereas because Ethereum is still relatively new, it's going through these cycles where it's expanding so much. But with all the the other altcoins, you just have to be careful because we don't quite know their use case just yet. So it's okay to assign a certain element of your portfolio towards them. But again, you've got to realize that Yes, they have explosive growth that they could happen and it'll increase um, their portfolio size uh, within your portfolio or it's going to go to zero. So this is why it's important to, to uh, really focus on your position sizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting market, right? I think that's the, that's the, we're kind of going through a bit of a revolution, but yeah. I think you can also learn a lot from history as well. And we've tried to bring you guys a lot of history today where we're like, okay, you know, we looked all the way back to the forties, you know, we looked at the seventies when we kind of went away from Brenton Woods, we talked about the hyperinflation, we talked about the consequences of that. Um, so I think it's, it's what we're really trying to do is, is get you guys to be empowered, to be able to start to make more informed decisions around where you put your money to capture the value that's on offer right now because there is there is so many opportunities out there but also that can be the overwhelming thing you know so yeah. I know for me um, the way I look at my portfolio at the moment is um, Bitcoin is a fundamental part of that right that is that is like a, a safety layer all right um, and and I know that um, based on the network effects and the adoption that it's going to grow slowly over time. Then Ethereum, I think, is is another one that I'm like, okay, I'm willing to now put a, a piece of the pie into that. Then I've invested in um, – We've got, I've got an NFT now, so, you know, whatever that is, that's just for me a bit of an experiment. But then I'm also looking at the metaverse and I'm looking at, for me, it's going, I think that is a, a big opportunity that's going to grow in market cap into the future. I'm going to go look over there, but I'm also now looking at property uh, and investment to create four savings and we know property is going to increase. So getting an investment property over there. So when we're talking about wrapping all this information together, it's going, okay, based on that, that's how myself and, and even you 
you as well, you look at that and you go, okay, this is how I'm going to start to play the field, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and that's just a, a little insight into how you can start to think about your investments. Yeah, um, you want to look at um, your asset class sort of diversification, but then you also want to look at how you want to rebalance your portfolio. And I think a, a good way to start all of that is to probably go and actually speak to a financial advisor just to sort of, of get an understanding of your risk tolerance. So you might be conservative, you might be a risk taker, but it's important to actually nut all that out. And so a lot of financial advisors advise people to have, say, a 60-40 split of stocks and bonds. Whereas for me personally, I wouldn't have 40% in bonds right now because they're earning negative yields on a real-term basis. And so instead, of, I'd have my 60% in stock, but then 40% into things like emerging markets, into gold, into Bitcoin, all these different things that we've said, and also to have somewhat of a cash balance there in order for you to take advantage of times when there's volatility Potential in the market. Opportunities. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Any final comments? No, I don't think so. Awesome. Well, so what we tried to bring today was just a bit of an insight into how you can combat against volatility and potential economic downturns because um, it's it's impossible impossible to predict these things. Like yeah. some people do, right? And I think they just get lucky more than anything. Like yeah. there, are, there are beliefs and, and kind of work that goes into it. But I know that at the level that I'm at and even the level that you're at, this isn't something that you should be trying to do. But instead what you do is you build your portfolio – to be able to combat this and and more importantly, take opportunities when they arise. Yeah, find a strategy that works for you and just stick to it no matter what. So try to avoid all the noise, try and not listen to what's happening out there in the media because the media loves to hype up, especially (laughs) turmoil in the market. Um, But if you just stick to the strategy that you come up with, you're most likely going to reward yourself in the long term for it. Awesome. Mm. All right, guys. Really hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, it's good to be back shooting and good to be back recording podcasts. Um, if you guys enjoyed the episode, make sure you subscribe. Um, your, you guys subscribing and, and supporting us allows us to get you know get guests on and continue to kind of live out our mission, which is to provide life changing conversations for you guys um, that you may not have access to. Um, so. We're really appreciative and, and look forward to a lot more of this in the future. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming oh, up. Oh, yeah. There's heaps coming. Yeah. Next level. We're taking it to the next level. Um, so keep an eye out too. All right, guys. See you next week. Cheers, guys.